Support for WFIU News comes from the IU Alumni Association, now offering IU Proud, a member program designed for recent graduates and those facing economic hardship. More information at alumni.iu.edu join. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber Internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Integrity First Insurance, provider of Erie Insurance, for all your auto, home, life, and business insurance needs. More information at 812-269-8897 or integrityfirstinsuranceservices.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org. And from Estate and Downsizing Specialists, LLC, offering complete turnkey services for estate and downsizing clients, from initial consultation through home cleanout to final real estate and personal property sales. More at edsindiana.com. Hello and welcome to Noon Edition on WFIU. I'm your host this week, Sarah Whitmire, and today I'm co-hosting with Mitch Legan, a reporter in the WFIU-TIU newsroom. Today we're talking with our guests about natural medicine, including cannabis and psychedelics. We're talking about how they are being used for medical purposes, and if it's possible, we'll see them more commonly used in the future. You can follow us on Twitter today, at Noon Edition. You can also send us questions using the email news at Indiana Public Media. Org. Our phone number today, 812-855-0811. I'll start by introducing our guests here. We have three guests. Jeff Meese is the founder and CEO of One World Enterprises. Alex Straker is a senior research scientist for the Department of Psychological and Brain Sciences. And Lynn Marie Morsky is the president of Psychedelic Medicine Association and the host of the Psychedelic Medicine podcast, as well as the medical director of New Life Health. Thank you all for being here today. And Thanks. Yes. Jeff, I'm just going to start with you because honestly, you're the reason that um, I proposed doing this show because you <laughs> you recently said that you were selling BBC, Bloomington Brewing Company, because you wanted to get more involved in advocacy and using um, like cannabis and psychedelics as, as medicine. Can you so can you just talk to us a little bit about how this became something that you're so interested and passionate about? Yeah, sure. I've, I've been uh, kind of a psychonaut since my teenager years, and it's never, it's never gone away for me. I've, I've explored a lot of different types of psychedelics and, and have been just very interested in the, in the movement itself and have, have followed it really closely and done a lot of advocacy over the years. I've been able to, because I'm a restaurant guy and people kind of seem to give restaurant people a little you're allowed to be weird, so uh, if that's a good way to put it. So I, I've always felt kind of safe in, you know, being out there. And I, I've just I really believe in the potential of these things as medicine and also as as ways for spiritual growth for people. Uh, there's a huge amount of potential. Do you think it's gotten more accepted in recent years? Oh, so, yeah. So you know, the media has been very positive for for quite a while, and and the resurgence of research is super exciting. You know, it was a dark age for fifty years. So, yeah, yeah our our engineer reminded me that in the '60s this was very common. Right. But but now we're just sort of starting to talk about it again. Yeah. But I'm no I'm no expert. You've got a couple of oh, experts yeah, yeah. on here. And <laughs> I'm not an expert. I'm an enthusiast. Okay. Alex, I want to go to you first. What do you see as the potential with cannabis and psychedelics? <clears throat> yeah. So I, mean, I, I can definitely talk about cannabinoids because that that's uh, that's the research we do here. I, I don't know if people realize that Bloomington is actually a, a world center for cannabinoid research. There are uh, more labs here doing that, that kind of work than anywhere else on the planet. It just happened to work out that way. But um, but yeah, certainly uh, there's been a, a huge amount of interest in, in uh, cannabinoids in particular and, and of course also in the psychedelics. And so there's this has been paralleled um, by, by research. There's been a, a vast growth in research. And so uh, there's uh, uh, CBD at this point is 
is uh, approved as a, a therapy for uh, for two forms of, of childhood epilepsy, and there's there's a lot of interest in, in other applications as well. Yeah, I want to talk talk more about that, especially as we get into the potential for legalization and um, in a state like Indiana. So, um, Lynn Marie, you're actually in California. So, what are the laws there like for the use of cannabis products and um, psychedelics? Oh, well, our laws regarding cannabis is it's legal here. But as far as psychedelics, we are basically where most places are in the nation where all psychedelics are aside from ketamine, which is you know a separate conversation we can have as to whether or not it's a psychedelic. But but the vast majority of psychedelics are illegal here, even though we do have um, SB 519 going through our legislature, which would decriminalize psychedelics. So there are some states that have um, like Oregon, for example, have decriminalized a lot of psychedelic and other drugs. Um, but California is working one of those bills through the legislature. And then there's a number of bills in, in like neighboring states got, or, or close by states like Washington and Colorado that are looking to do more of um, another plan that Oregon has done where come January 2023, psilocybin, which is the ingredient in magic mushrooms, will be available in a legal form for medical use. And so I think you'll see a lot more of that kind of structure popping up in, in the years to come. I'm going to be the one today who's asking all the dumb questions. Um, so is cannabis considered a psychedelic? That's a great uh, question. Go ahead, it's Alex. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no, actually, I, I would say generally speaking, no. Um, okay. Maybe at high doses, but but um, no, it, it's um, it's a it's a complicated topic and the, the sort of hallucinogens are kind of the umbrella term, um, but they're more dissociatives. Dissociatives. Okay, so what's what's the difference between that and a psychedelic um well it's a little complicated but but basically um the 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 sensory input from uh from the body goes through something called the thalamus and it's kind of a relay station and so dissociatives they tend to kind of interrupt that signaling whereas um uh, uh psychedelics tend to more amplify it and, and kind of uh, yeah, yeah amplify you might say so alex this is mitch here um just get wondering you kind of touched on it can you take us through what kind of like what are you studying with the cannabinoids specifically maybe right now right i mean we're, we're doing a lot of neuropharmacology um and so i mean so for instance there's a lot of interest in uh the, the kind of the minor cannabinoids because you've got thc and cbd everyone knows about that but there's another hundred compounds uh, a lot of companies are they're making kind of claims about them there's also actual interest in, in maybe you know, therapeutic possibilities and so we've been testing them in a neuronal model that, that's that's kind of our, our big thing and also terpenoids uh that those are what give uh, cannabis its smell uh, but people are also making health related claims about that and so we, we've got uh we're working on a paper related to that and we're also doing things like dry mouth, dry eye, but that, that's a separate story. And so just uh, keeping with the, the cannabinoids here for a second, I've done a little bit of reporting on Delta-8 THC, and I guess I, we got you on the phone here right now. I just Can you give me your thoughts on Delta-8? It's becoming more, uh, I'm seeing billboards for it everywhere. Just kind of take us through that and your thoughts on uh, Delta-8 here, how it's become so popular. Yeah, yeah the, this, is, I, this is a big deal. And I actually just gave a, a kind of a, I guess an introductory seminar to uh, the Indiana Public Defenders uh, Council on, on this, this topic because um, Delta-8, it's, it's this peculiar kind of loophole, you might say. And, and Delta-8 is very, very structurally, chemically, very close to Delta-9. And it, it's um, so close that it, it's very hard, even for high-end labs, to tell the difference. But it's it's a, it's a synthetic cannabinoid. Plants make it, but in very small amounts. So any delta A that that is on a uh, uh, in a product has been synthesized in a lab and has been added to it. Um, but we don't know. I mean, it probably works very similarly to delta nine, but we don't know because the work hasn't been done. Jeff, if you don't mind, um, so you, cannabis has become more popular and more accepted. Why do you think psychedelics, it's not at the same level? Hmm. From a political place, they're, they're, uh, so, they're so, there's so much more interest in cannabis over the, say, over the period of prohibition. You know, there's been, it's a lot more widely used. So, so more people, it feels safer. Uh, there's, you know, there's a lot of fear around psychedelics from, you know, from, from years of prohibition uh, that doesn't, people feel a lot, a lot safer with cannabis. So, yeah, I mean, how do you explain that fear? Why do people have that fear and why do you think they shouldn't? Hmm. 
Well, we, we the, you know, there's a healthy fear with all drugs, especially when it's coming out of a black market model. But, you know, it's the, this is what we've been told, you know, mm-hmm. as, we've, as we've grown up. So, so uh, uh, cannabis has just been, it's a plant, so it's really, it grows everywhere. And, and uh, so it's more common. So, so we get more comfortable with it, I think. And psychedelics, they those come from plants too, though, right? Some. So, so mushrooms are the obvious thing that are very common, easy to grow. Anybody who grows any kind of mushroom can grow psychedelic mushrooms. So that's sort of they're opening the door, I think, because they're a lot more difficult to control. You know, to make LSD takes some really significant lab and experience in how to do it. So uh, the mushrooms are sort of opening the door in, in places like Oregon that have uh, legalized. Okay. But I think it was, if I, if I can jump in, I think it was also just a little more obvious for cannabinoids what, what it might be good for. Even in the 70s, there, were, there was uh, evidence for medicinal applications. I think it just, it just took a lot longer for, for the, the psychedelic side of things to, to really figure out what, what one could do with it. Yeah, Lynn-Marie and, and Jeff, I'd love for both of you to talk about what psychedelics are, are good for. Hmm. Go ahead, Lynn-Marie. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Well, currently, uh, there are a number of psychedelics that are in phase one through three trials with the FDA. So they are on their way to becoming FDA approved medicines. The one that's furthest along is MDMA. And that is one that was made illegal much later than the other psychedelics. And it was already in use for PTSD uh, therapeutics. And that's what it's it's um, being investigated for now. So it's currently MDMA assisted psychotherapy. So it's not that you give the medicine by itself and then you know, walk away and the patient's by themselves. There's two therapists in the room. It's an eight hour session. There's psychotherapy before and after, but they're finding that in, in the phase three trials, something like 67% of the patients who have you know longstanding PTSD are doing this MDMA assisted psychotherapy and following the course of therapy, they are taking the, the it's called the CAPS scale, which tells you know the practitioner, do they have PTSD? They're taking that CAPS scale test and um, they're not qualifying as even having PTSD anymore. These are the, like the amazing kind of results that we're seeing with MDMA for PTSD. Psilocybin, like we said, for magic mushrooms is close behind. It's entering phase three trials for things like depression, but also they've investigated it for end of life anxiety, that that one is getting investigated for many things, cluster headaches, all kinds of applications for psilocybin. And then there are lesser known or ones that are uh, not quite as far along, like LSD, DMT, they're investigating for you know depression. I've seen DMT investigation for stroke because DMT is uh, found to have neurogenesis properties. And so it can help restore neurons in the brain or restore neural connections after a stroke. So there are a, a lot of psychedelics that are being investigated for a really wide range of conditions. Okay. Jeff, do you want to? Yeah, I would like to add a couple things for people who who haven't followed it as closely. Is that you know when when these these drugs were made Schedule One in 1970 with the Controlled Substances Act that that research stopped. It just stopped. You know the schedule. You can't even study these things. And I think that's an important thing for us to understand. Is here in America there we actually made laws such that scientists could not study these things. Uh, in reality. That's one thing. The other thing for people to understand who might think, okay, it's another drug for whatever, but um, what's kind of special in MDMA, say, for PTSD, it's important to recognize that these are these are not drugs people have to keep taking. These are drugs that they take, they have an experience, and, and there's a, there's a, something happens in the mind that that is healing for people. They don't keep taking the MDMA. It's, it's experiential. So you do it one one time and for eight and, hours. It, it's and... three times in the trials that are going on right now, but but basically yes. Okay. And a lot of why that is is because, like Jeff said, we're not chasing the symptoms anymore. Like, it, for example, an antidepressant is generally trying to treat the symptoms of depression. These psychedelics bring you to a place where you can address the core symptoms, which may be a childhood trauma or an ingrained belief that you have. And it's much more effective to address that than to try to f- just pacify symptoms as they come up. And that's why something like PTSD is showing what looks to be, you know, no longer exists because what we've been doing for years is just trying to, okay, if they have nightmares, let's help 
address the nightmares. We'll address the depression. But this goes and addresses the core trauma that led to the PTSD. And that's why that model is no longer take one of these every day. It's let's let's get to the core. And hopefully this is not a lifelong condition you have to, to deal with afterward. Jeff, you <clears throat> excuse me, you mentioned, you know, 1970s research kind of stops. And I kind of I wanted to ask Lynn Marie, how do you you know, how, how do you how do you get involved in, in research and advocacy like this? And why do you feel that this is important? Is it just it's you think it's more effective than other sorts of treatment for this um, kind of a, a two prong question there? Absolutely. OK, to, to address the first prong, how do you get involved? I mean, most of the people doing the research are scientists. And so, you know, they have chosen to direct their career path toward this. You know, Johns Hopkins was the first center in the country, the Center for Psychedelic and Consciousness Research. And so those who might be coming up, you know, I know you're near Indiana University, but if students are interested in that, maybe look at there's um, like I said, Johns Hopkins, University of Wisconsin, UCSF, they all have psychedelic research centers. I think Emory is starting one, Duke, like they're, they're popping up everywhere. So this is a field of study now you can specialize in. Um, for myself, I was a doctor at the VA for nine years and I was seeing veterans and I'm seeing the amount of mental health issues that they have from their time in the service. And I'm seeing that the things that they're doing aren't working. We know this, you know, like I said, PTSD that, you know, they're on two or three antidepressants, they're taking therapy. The symptoms are still maybe abated a little bit, but significantly still present. And then I'm looking at the psychedelic science research where, you know, like I told you with the MDMA results, it's, we're no longer chasing symptoms. They're having real you know, curative type properties Though we, you know, tend to be cautious with using that word. But that's why I, I left clinical medicine and I dedicated my field of, you know, um, advocacy basically to psychedelics because they're absolutely more efficacious, efficacious than anything we'd been using previously. I want to give our phone numbers here real quick. Uh, today we're talking about psychedelics and cannabis. Our number is 812-855-0811. The email is news at indianapublicmedia.org, or you can tweet us at Noon Edition. We, we got a question from our producer wondering about post-effects on the brain. Um, I'm not sure who's best to handle that. Maybe Alex? I guess I'm not sure what, what what's the question. Is there post the, effects? Uh, the post-effects on the brain after doing um, one of the, well, um, specifically psychedelics, I mean, probably. It's probably more as a, a, a question of psychedelics, right? Because there, there's this whole question of flashbacks, things like that. So I, I, I okay. wouldn't know about so that. So maybe Lynn Marie? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, probably ironically to, to the intention or the concern of the question is that most of the post effects on the brain are positive. Uh, like I said, with DMT, which is present in both, you know, DMT itself and then ayahuasca and psilocybin, it's shown to help regrow brain cells and increase neural connectivity. Ketamine increases neural connection, psilocybin. There's this fantastic, you know, I don't know if there's show notes here, but there's a fantastic uh, image that was put out by the Imperial College Psychedelics Group where it shows this is your brain and then this is your brain on psilocybin. And the connectivity is, I don't know, maybe five times what it is without psilocybin. So it increases the ability of your brain to, to brain sections to talk to each other. And so the the way that this looks in reality is, you know, we have that monkey mind, that that voice in our head that's just generally commonly saying the same thing over and over. And a lot of times what something like depression is, is we're in a rut and we're saying the same negative thing to ourselves over and over. Psychedelics comes in and shakes that up a little bit and starts connecting parts of the brain that hadn't connected so that you're no longer kind of stuck in that same thought groove, which really helps people get out of things like depression. And so most of the effects on the brain um, are, are positive. So a lot of the bad press, and that was, you know, what we talked about with, you know, why people are scared about psychedelics. Oh, this is going to put holes in your brain or this and that. I mean, it was all their scare tactics and there's generally nothing behind most of it. Anything can be abused, but when taken in the therapeutic settings, the brain effects are overwhelmingly positive. Hey, Lynn Marie, I've, another related to that, you probably know these numbers better than me, but in the MDMA PTSD trials, uh, wasn't it a thing that this 67% uh, success rate in the treatment-resistant PTSD, doesn't that like grow to like 76% after a year, right? Uh, after follow-up in, follow in a year, the numbers actually went up. That yes, in, in phase two, that's absolutely true. So I think in phase two, it was like lower 60s or, or maybe upper 50s at initially. And then by one year, it was 67 percent. Mm. So there was that amount of increase. And then in the phase three, the initial came out and we're like, we're 67 percent already at the beginning. And yes, like like I said, the trends had shown that it, it 
continues to improve. And, and that speaks a lot to the fact that yes, psychedelics tend to be, you know, two or three sessions and then in theory you're done, but a really important part of psychedelics is the integration period afterward. So when you've gotten insights from these ceremonies or experiences or whatever you want to call them, that you continue to work with somebody like a therapist to integrate what you've learned into your life. Like if you learned, Hey, this maladaptive thought pattern I had going on is really holding me back. Well, it's helpful to be working with a therapist to form new thought patterns and make sure that, you know, you don't kind of regress back to the other. And so, of course, you know, I think that's a lot of it is that when people who weren't previously um, aware of what was causing the, the trauma now have that ability to speak about that with their therapist, can things continue, like you suggested, to get better and better? So, Jeff, I've heard people say things before, like they have a bad trip or some things, but you all are making this sound like it's it's pretty safe. So are, are, but there are multiple kinds, so are some safer than others or? Hmm. Uh, you know, there's the idea that no drug is safe. You know, that's an important baseline. And um, so there's lots of ways to make it safer. Um, set and setting is a thing we talk about a lot in psychedelic experiment, experiences that your mindset and your physical setting is really important not to experiment with these things when you're upset or mm-hmm. uh, in, a, in, a, in a bad environment. So, yeah, and those things have been known to contribute to the, you know, the bad trip or what we kind of, a lot of people more refer to them these days as uh, challenging experiences, <laughs> which I'd say anybody with much exposure to psychedelics has had those things. I certainly have. Okay. And... Again, these are all the really dumb questions, but you're talking about doing this a, a, a few times, maybe like three times, but is microdosing, is that using psychedelics too? And that's pretty frequent, right? Uh, yeah, so people are using the micro, very small, maybe sub-threshold doses of some of these things, particularly psilocybin, uh, as, a, as a thing to kind of enhance uh, maybe just you can still you know you can go to work and take these things Michael Pollan said in a interview he's like that's what capitalism would do to psychedelics is turn it. <laughs> but uh, uh, but it's yeah it's an interesting field and that has not been explored really very much in, uh, in science so microdosing is like something you would do every day there's protocols it's, with like twice a week or go ahead I was Lynn, you say, probably Lynn know Marie, more about the, it than I do what's the difference between you know these these I don't know, you set someone up in a chair and you do the therapy session versus microdosing. Maybe that's a, a good way to ask it. Yeah, absolutely. And and like Jeff was saying, there are protocols that are not every day, but it may be two days on, one day's off, one day off. But even in those protocols, it's not forever. It's we'll do this for a month or we do this for five rounds and then maybe we do it again next year. And again, like he suggested, there's not a lot of research. It's trickling out. A big study that recently I, f- I featured on my podcast was that uh, when they finally did a self-blinding trial, they're showing that it really isn't significantly better than than placebo. But then there are other trials that are showing that, yes, over, you know, people do, you know, feel like overwhelmingly they are more positive or there's slightly more joy in their life or maybe their depression got a little better. It's 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 a very interesting field. But again, it is still not something you do or or most of the protocols every day. It may be that something you do for a while. And like Jeff was suggesting, it's a sub-perceptual dose. So you're not walking around feeling like, oh, I'm on a substance, but the chemicals that are within, like we were suggesting that DMT has those neural effects, like they're still present. So they're not present at levels that make you feel high necessarily, but they're doing some some sub-threshold work there on our physiology. And so you know, microdosing is so much I guess, more accessible in theory because it doesn't take eight hours in a therapist. So it'll be a really exciting place to do a lot of research in the future, for sure. So that's almost like a pill or something. It definitely is really a pill, uh, especially if you're you know, psilocybin and, and, and people are taking measured doses of it. And, you know, I mean, a lot of these things definitely come in pill form, like even the MDMA when it's given, because that's not a, a plant, that's a, you know, chemically manufactured thing. It's given in pill form. But again, the MDMA is given three times and then you do those those ceremonies. These microdose capsules generally are a pill. Some people do microdose LSD and they may do that on a small piece of paper or something like that. Um, those are probably the two most commonly microdosed things. But yes, it is a pill. But again, like the... Some things that that we're finding are helpful is that if you use the same preparation that you would for a a regular ceremony, like going into these psychedelic journeys, 
there's generally a preparation session where you're setting an intention and like, what do I want to work on in this session? And same thing, if you are microdosing and you, before you take your microdose in the morning, you set an intention, that's almost just like a mindfulness practice that's going to be beneficial regardless if you're setting an intention before meditation or setting an intention before breath work or yoga or whatever. It's just a part of our day where we're being a little bit more mindful. And so that's why it's really hard to tease that out from what the microdoses are actually doing is that it's really helping people kind of overall increase their their mindfulness and health habits. Uh, Producer Nathan is telling me we have a question from the phone from Amy. Um, She is training to become a psychedelic therapist and wanted to know how we can help create centers that work with clients here in Indiana uh, with just kind of generally considering the the political climate. I guess that'd be for... um, for anybody who wants to take that question, I guess. <laughs> well, the show will help, hopefully, and there's a lot of work to do, right? We're here in the middle, and, you know, we'll see. Maybe we'll leapfrog, you know? Maybe uh, maybe Indiana will say, we missed the boat on cannabis, and maybe we're going to get – I don't know. I'm, I'm hopeful. We've got to be hopeful. And I was going to say, this kind of leads into a question I wanted to ask you, Jeff. We talked about Bloomington Brewing Company earlier. You said maybe you wanted to focus on psychedelic advocacy and things like that. Can you – you know, take us through that. Are you like meeting with state legislators sort of thing? What does what that advocacy look right. like? Right. So I do. Yeah. I've, so th- really things like this just help getting getting the conversation out there so people can ask questions. And there's there's a lot of media. It, the field right now is it's changing. There's so much. Years ago, I used to feel like I was on top of everything that's going on. And now, you know, Lynn Marie would say there's you know, it's so it, there's so much going on. So, yeah, it's talking to people and, and helping helping people who are decision makers and leaders sort of open minds, you know. But there's a there's a lot of people who have had some experience with these things and and know, you know, that that, yeah, there's potential here to, to not just for healing people with problems, but what they call healthy, normal people like most of us, like we can actually get better. You know, we can improve our lives, all of us. On the healing aspect, I wanted to throw this to Alex and Lynn Marie. I do a lot of reporting on opioids and the opioid epidemic that we have. How can cannabis and or uh, not not opioids, uh, psychedelics, could could that help with the opioid epidemic that we're uh, seeing here in Indiana and across the country? I guess maybe Alex yeah, first, I, I if can, you want to go. I can start, start on that. I mean, certainly, um, I mean, the, the reason... I mean, opiates are really important for pain management, and really, they're the best thing out there. This is why people turn to them for for that kind of therapy. And so, um, the the potential for cannab- cannabinoids is um, is as an alternative uh, way to manage pain. And, and there's um, there's a lot of evidence that they that they can do that, that they can uh, for, for certain kinds of pain. And so, uh, I think that there's a tremendous amount of interest in that, including uh, research that's going on here at IU uh, to to look into that further. Have you looked into Maybe I mean I don't I'm just I'm just kind of spitballing here. Is there a way that cannabis can be used to maybe help wean people off of opioids who have become addicted to them as opposed to maybe as a, a pain tolerance thing? Right. Um, that I'm a little less familiar with that, but th- there is okay. an interest in that as well because um, it, it basically has to do with with the you know the rewarding properties of of opiates, uh, and obviously cannabinoids also have rewarding properties and so they uh there's definitely active interest in, in trying to to see if, if you can um uh, i think it's using uh, cannabinoid receptor antagonists to help reduce the uh, basically wean, wean people off but uh, i'm not that familiar lynn marie same sort of thing is there anything with you know psychedelics and, and opioids Yes, absolutely. On on both fronts, both as Alex was saying, um, on addressing the pain front and also like you were suggesting on addressing the um, opioid use disorder. So on the pain front, we have ketamine, which is like I suggested before, is actually dissociative, but we tend to lump it in with psychedelics. And actually to the question from a long time ago, many people in the industry do consider cannabis at high doses of psychedelic for the same reason that we, you know, things that are dissociating tend to have kind of the same therapeutic effects. So with ketamine, it's very effective for pain control. So there are people who do ketamine infusions for pain, especially things with like chronic regional pain syndrome, things that that are like longstanding chronic pain. So that that is an option for the pain control. But as far as somebody who may be suffering from opioid use disorder, there is a psychedelic called Ibogaine. It is from the Iboga root from Gabon, Africa. And studies have shown it is extremely effective in addressing opioid use disorder patients. Same thing. It's in a ceremonial setting. It's a one of the, as you were talking about challenging trips, it's generally a very challenging trip, but afterward, 
the the patient is very often able to be off of opioids and there isn't that withdrawal period, which is the really painful part of getting off opioids. And so I think Ibogaine for opioid use disorder is going to be one of the kind of game changers um, in the psychedelic world that's outside of you know what we're what we're seeing in MDMA and that kind of thing. I think that'll be huge, huge for public health for sure. Alex, I, I want to follow up real quick just to what Mitch was asking Jeff about about adopting psychedelics as some form of medicine or cannabis, you know, cannabidiol, it it took legislators a long time and then they it was just for kids who were having these seizure disorders. So in Indiana, do you think there's, you know, much appetite to be having a conversation about even further decriminalizing cannabis? Yeah, I, I have no idea. I, I really, I really can't say what what the appetite is, and and uh, I, all, I can, all I can say is that the, there, there's a tremendous amount of, of um, uh, scientific interest in uh, and clinical interest in, in kind of pushing this the science further. And I think the more we know about what what specifically these um, these these um, uh, compounds and the things that they target can do, uh, the the greater the likelihood that there'll be legal changes. Yeah. I have a thought on that that I wanted to share. You know, we need new models for how to con- control these things, if you will. Drugs of abuse, things like cocaine and opiates, you know, I think we're over 100,000 drug, drug the opiate overdoses last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. hun- yeah. 107,000. Oh, yeah. Yep. Thank you. Huge. And um, uh, we need different models for controlling these things, especially as things like psychedelics become become more popular and there's a model and that i want to throw out in scuba diving you know or i don't know if any of you are scuba divers but yeah so, so scuba diving broke out of the u.s military years ago and uh uh groups it was dangerous and people were getting killed and hurting themselves and there wasn't uh the u.s government didn't step in and prohibit scuba diving what happened was within within the subculture of scuba Groups formed that wanted people to be able to do this safely, Naui and Patty. Uh, and to this day in the United States or the, any states, there are no uh, state and federal laws around scuba diving. But you cannot go out and rent scuba gear without a certification. Everybody just knows if you're going to scuba dive, you you need a certification card. And I think that model, uh, that idea, certainly in the realm of psychedelics, could work that we, you know, it's it's got to be created by people who want people to have these experiences and do it safely, just like what happened in the scuba subculture. That's interesting. Yeah, um, we got a question about the dangers of lab versus natural psychedelics. Um, can, Not for me. Let's probably. see, Lynn Marie, <laughs> could you address that? It, does it say what specifically they believe the danger is? No. Uh, I, I, I think what it's getting at are, you know, I think typically we believe if it comes from a plant, it's safer. If it's synthetic, it's... And maybe kind of like what we were talking about with Delta-8, like Delta-8's, you know, it's a synthetic um, cannabinoid and, and people get concerned that, you know, you're, people are making their own Delta-8 sort of thing. Maybe that uh, that's what they're going for there. That, that is an interesting concept because, of course, I didn't go straight to the making your own. I was thinking about, the, like, for example, MDMA that's in the, the phase three trials that is made in a very controlled lab setting. And it is significantly safer than MDMA that you may get on the street, which is which can be cut with some other substance, including something like fentanyl that, you know, a lot of the drug overdoses are not mm. somebody thinking they're taking an opioid. They're thinking they're taking a, a street drug that has been mixed with something. And so. You know, just on that front, the harm reduction and harm reduction is a term I, I, you know, like Jeff said, when we're trying to kind of self-monitor our industry, harm reduction is a, a thing we like to bring up as much as possible. So in the lab, we know what we're getting. And so I don't think there's, I think there's like the opposite of danger. I think it's significantly more safe. The further question that may be kind of the subtext for that is, is lab versus plant is one better than the other? And I'd say that there are pros and cons to to many. For example, like if you're looking at psilocybin, as you said, can grow anywhere. But what's the the quality, you know, was a fertilizer used where it grew or when you do it, you know, how much uh, of the actual psilocybin is in that dried mushroom you're taking. And it's really just hard to to know exactly for like dosing kind of things. Whereas if you're making 
synthetic psilocybin, you're able to dial down that dose. And so they're they're kind of finding hybrids now where there are companies like Filament Health that extract from the plant but are still able to standardize it. So then it it's from the plant, but you know the lab has some role in it to make sure that it's still standardized. So I think there's a role for every part of this industry. And a lot of people want to kind of make it like, should it be, you know, the indigenous practices versus these newfangled things that the Westerners are doing? And should there, should a lot of the, the controversy is like, should these pharmaceutical companies be trying to get the trip out of it? You know, some formulations, they're trying to make it so that the psychedelic no longer has that eight hour trip, depending on which we're talking about. And, and you know, my view is that this shouldn't be an either or. This should be a wide range of things that if you want to go down to Peru and do ayahuasca with the indigenous facilitators, amazing, great. But I know that, for example, people who are maybe elderly or incapacitated in some way, but they like, for example, could benefit from the DMT benefits after a stroke. I don't want them to have to go down to Peru. I would love for them to have an option that's more easily consumable and, and maybe taking the trip out is the solution for them. And so I just think that that if we can see less of an either or and more of like there's a role for every part of it. Jeff, I, I, I know some people who have done this in Peru, and uh, I think you're at least familiar with them. I'm not sure if you've done this. Uh, I have, yeah. But what, mm-hmm. is, what is that exactly? What mm. is that like? Well, you know, Iowa, let's talk about ayahuasca yeah. a little bit because it's familiar to people. Um, uh, it's it, nobody knows how long it's been used in the Amazon. Nobody, nobody knows. We just know that the first ethnobotanist to go down and sort of look for it found it, and, and uh, nobody really knows. I've done 14 ayahuasca ceremonies oh my in my life, and down in, uh, and yeah, they've been amazing. And I've, I've helped a couple other people go, and they've had amazing experiences. So and, it's legal there. It's yeah, or it's a kind of gray area, but yeah, Costa Rica and Mexico—they're—they're—they're they're, they're pretty hands-off. It's obscure and really runs kind of under the radar. Can you? And, I mean, can you kind of set the scene for us? What's it yeah? So, for? so they're done. Tradi- you know, very traditional. They're uh, really it comes from the indigenous. You know, and there's there's uh, in an the ayahuasca ceremonies. There's, there's a Shipibo tradition from from um, the Shipibo tribe, and and we would with practitioners uh, gather at sundown and drink this foul tasting <laughs> brew and wait for about an hour for it to come on. And when it comes on, the practitioners, a shaman, if you will, uh, start uh, in, in the groups that I was with, start chanting. And that chanting goes on for five hours and everybody's just in their own space. You're in your own space and most people are throwing up or having to go to the bathroom and you know it's a it's a confronting thing to experience and um, uh, but very powerful you know what what you explore and it's different every time and uh, yeah it's considered very the, like the a feminine deity and then the iboga I did two iboga ceremonies last year and those are considered to be more masculine and I credit my iboga experiences with Getting getting a kick in the butt to help me out of the brewery business. I do. I really. I came back from those, and I'm like, uh, this this is the year we're gonna we're gonna move on. I'm gonna move on to my next thing. So it just gives you like more direction. clarity, direction, direction, and clarity. Yeah. So we we got a question from Laura on on the phone. Do these psychedelics and or cannabis help with diseases like Alzheimer's and dementia? Um, Alex, do you want to talk about just cannabis? If uh, yeah, so I, uh, offhand, I don't, I don't know that there would necessarily be an application. We're still figuring out uh, what what they um, what they can do, uh, and what they, or even what receptors they target inside the body. Okay, Lynn Marie, do you do you know about um, with psychedelics and diseases like Alzheimer's and dementia? There have not been any studies so far, though, like I said, with the the properties that are uh, increasing repair in the brain, it seems like this is an an obvious place that that should be investigated soon. And I'm sure it will be. Okay. Um, Jeff, I have another one for you. This is a term that I had not heard until recently, but CAMBO? Is that in this family as well? No, it's really not. Okay, uh, com- combo or cambo? Oh, yeah, combo. Okay. I uh, I I explored that last summer, and uh, there's not really any psychoactive effects with combo. It's a it's a purgative. Uh, you take it. It's put on your skin, and uh, basically makes you purge. And uh, I found it uh, 
unpleasant and without very much reward personally. Okay. But some people really some it is an indigenous practice and comes, I think, from the Amazon. Yeah, that's what, when you were describing the other one it, and getting sick and it, and it's I mean, perfectly legal. That's a that's a nice advantage. Combo's legal here. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. But these other, like to do any of these ceremonies, you have to go abroad. Right. Well, there's there's uh, there there are ayahuasca churches in the U.S. Two of them that uh, that operate under some protection from federal RIFRA. The, right. The, that that's what uh, that is what really allows these churches to function. Religious liberty, baby. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's how they have the Church of Cannabis yep. as well that came out of that. Right. So these are in Indiana. Uh, the churches operate. I, I don't know of them in Indiana, but okay. they're in the U.S. Hmm. Uh, in some of my research, this is maybe for Lynn Marie. Um, I came across something called hallucinogen persisting perception disorder. I was just wondering if you could maybe explain that for me and maybe how common is it? Yes, absolutely. And I'm glad you brought that up because when I said that there are virtually no uh, side effects from on, on the brain or effects on the brain that are negative, that is the one that... Okay does come to mind it's it's rare but not it's not it's so rare that it does you know that it's not worth mentioning and it is uh essentially where that's kind of where the flashbacks that that you had brought up earlier or somebody had brought up earlier come into play where in hppd as it's called some people continue to see things like flashing lights or uh, when the, they look up at street lights there are halos or they may see kind of like visual fuzz and um they scientists are not quite sure why it happens and there's no definitive method of cure at this point and it's something that that we're hoping a lot more research looks into because again it's one of those things that's that's so rare that it's hard to to get enough people to to figure it out but as the you know psychedelic use grows unfortunately i'm assuredly some more people will end up with hppd and and research into that will continue i think overall it's a lot of the harm reduction techniques that I've um, that we talked about, like like Jeff referred to set and setting, which means, you know, you're not doing 50 different drugs at once in an unsafe place and, and that you're doing it in a more controlled manner. Because I think uh, a lot of those can come when the use is maybe you're piling the psychedelics on top of each other. I think a lot of the, the things that we're concerned about are much less prevalent when these psychedelics are done in a more intentional and I, I would say therapeutic way. But. You can, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be in a clinical setting. It could be in your own home with your own guide or facilitator. And that doesn't necessarily look like a clinic, but it's still an intentional process, like where you're, you know, what dose you're taking, you know, what's in it. You know, you, you have, there are drug test kits that if you're doing this at home, that you are sure what you're taking and maybe what the dose is. And I think when we take those harm reduction type measures, hopefully these side effects like HPPD or adverse effects like HPPD will be less prevalent. I think if I'm if I'm right here, Alex, with cannabidiol, wasn't wasn't one of the issues like it, you get it from different suppliers and the dose might be different? You know, actually, I was just going to bring this up because the, this is a major issue. And I assume it's the same for, for psychedelics is uh, um, you, it's unregulated. right? Uh, so you don't know unless it's from uh, uh, basically the, there's a, a medicinal form uh, from from a company and that that's been approved. But, but apart from that, it's hard to know. And so I have a colleague who, who looked at this, um, looking at samples from Indiana, because you can get CBD in grocery stores. And, and all of the samples that, that she tested had CBD in them, which, which is good. But all of them had different res- uh, amounts, always less than, than what they said. And so this, this is a real, uh, a real issue, a real concern, because it's, uh, it's, to some extent, it's a free-for-all. Well, and yeah, and if you're using it for medicine, um, it seems like that would be very complicated, understanding the dose. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And certainly there are. And, and this is another consideration is that, you know, I, I think, you know, cannabinoids are generally considered benign by a lot of people. But I, I think, you know, there are vulnerable populations who, who can be at risk. And, and there um, uh, and so one one this kind of gets back to the, the question of, of uh, effects on the brain. I mean, there is a movement um, to because it's it's sort of anti nausea. So to, to basically take cannabinoids uh, during pregnancy. Uh, to help with morning sickness, but um, and there's some some worrisome research going uh, that's come out in terms of what happens um, to to the developing brain uh, when it's exposed to this, especially during during that that period. So I, I think um, th- there are a lot of things that still have to be unpacked. 
We got a question for you, Alex. How does cannabis treatment help for certain cancers? Not really something I'm super familiar with. Yeah, sorry. Okay. But in, in Indiana, it's really used for the seizure disorders where it's legal, correct? Is that still the case? Right. I mean, that's that's what CBD is used for it. And certainly, I mean, in, in terms of, of uh, uh, therapy for, for nausea, um, uh, so, so cancer treatment associated uh, nausea um, and loss of appetite, uh, cannabinoids are, uh, I think they're actually approved um, for, for that kind of use. Um, uh, certainly in some states, it's, it's, a, it's considered an acceptable uh, um, treatment, but, that's, that, but nothing that gets at uh, the fundamentals of, of cancer itself. Lynn Marie, are in your in your work, are you talking with like legislators and officials on obviously you're over there in California, maybe from other states too, about you know advocating for um, psychedelic medicine? well, there there's work beginning on the federal level, okay regarding uh, psychedelics, which is very exciting. And then a, a lot of state legislatures, like I said, especially in the West, have taken up these models of either decriminalization or a model like Oregon, where things will be available through a more, we call it a medicalized model, but it's not, you don't have to have a medical condition to use it, but it's a, a more kind of monitored model where, for example, in Oregon, if you if someone is not familiar, is starting in January, you will be able to take psilocybin, but it has to be grown there at a licensed facility. It has to be um, handed out by a licensed facilitator in a licensed center. You know, there's so they're, they're monitoring every aspect of it to promote the most benefit and, as we said before, reduce harm. And then there are other states, like I believe Connecticut, where there are things going through their, their legislature, to, legislature to try to increase funding for research. And I think Texas also had something similar. So a lot of states are going out about, about it in different ways. But like you had said before, the more that this happens state by state, and then, like I said, the federal government has now turned their, their attention to it, Hopefully we see this kind of rising tide and every, you know, the stigma starts to decrease and this becomes easier on a state by state or a federal level. And I kind of my follow up question to that would I mean, you, you, you kind of touched on it there. But what has been effective in maybe convincing these these legislators and officials that, hey, this is you know, this is legit and something worth taking a look at? Veterans, I have to say, hands down, there's nothing more bipartisan than wanting to help uh, okay. our veterans. And so, so many veterans, and there's so many veteran psychedelic organizations. Um, I'm just going to name drop some veterans exploring treatment solutions, heroic hearts, look those up if you're a vet. Um, but it's the healing that they're experiencing through psychedelics. And it's so profound. And they've so many have struggled for so many years that often when they find this healing, they become extreme advocates. They want to tell everybody and they want to share this with their veteran brothers and sisters. And again, like I said, both sides of the aisle want to see our veterans get help. They're, this 22 suicides a day is not acceptable. We have to find solutions. And so the fact that so many vets have come out and spoken their truth, shared their stories, I think that's what's really helping move this forward. This is the final question that I had um, kind of written down, and it's for everybody here. Um, Lynn Marie, we've got Eli Lilly, the pharmaceutical company, is based in Indianapolis. And so just kind of wondering to everybody, how much of an impact does having Eli Lilly based in Indianapolis have on some of these pushes to legalize cannabis for medicinal use or psychedelics or things like that? Is is Eli Lilly a big part of maybe stymieing some of that? Nobody wants to touch it. I'm going to ask Jack. I, I, ju <laughs> I just don't know. I don't, You hear things, yeah. but I, I, I really, I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I don't know either way. There is this story of the parent Eli Lilly had a, an early um, sort of cannabis. Yeah, they had um, a big old pot farm. Yeah. <laughs> yes, which is hilarious. Um, but uh, yeah, so I, I don't know what their role is now. I, I don't think they're working on uh, anything cannabinoid related. But I don't think that, that they would shy away from it because, um, uh, you know, especially if you're looking about the, the endogenous cannabinoid signaling system, that, that's a legitimate target. Yeah. Uh, Jeff. I want to just ask you about, like, obviously, you support the use of psychedelics. I'm assuming cannabis, too. I do, yes. Yeah. So how do you confront those people who are just totally against it or really scared of it? I mean, what what is your message to those folks? Hmm. Uh, I, th I think uh, anyone who's strongly against it, in my experience, just, uh, uh, how to put it, uh, we need to know more. 
we need to know more. And we, we, uh, when we can recognize that, that the science has stopped on this stuff really for years, I think sometimes, many times that opens people's eyes. They don't really understand that a Schedule One substance has just been almost impossible to study would block our scientists from things. And Lynn Marie's comment about veterans, I just want to commend that that's so true. And uh, and it's been really powerful to see that community um, be advocates. Yeah. Um, I lost my train of thought, Mitch. Uh, <laughs> I, I was going to ask some, something just, you know, one thing that we saw a lot when we were covering the opioids and we did a documentary on it was that people thought it was safe because it was coming from a doctor. So I'm wondering how much that might help with what we're talking about something like psychedelics. Well, I'll, I'll pop in here if you don't mind. So I run the Psychedelic Medicine Association, and our mission is to educate doctors and, and clinicians across the world. It's not just a nationwide organization. We want everybody who sees patients, when the patient comes to you and says, I'm feeling sad or I'm having this mental issue or maybe even this physical issue, I want those clinicians to have, like you just said, have overcome the stigma, have the education to start that conversation with patients because you're absolutely right. Um, it's not only that sometimes we think things are safer, even if they're not safe, like opioid not that opioids are inherently unsafe, right? But they're given out in a way that doesn't necessarily minimize harm. Psychedelics uh, come with so many of their own harm reduction techniques, or for example, like most of them are not addictive at all. So we do want to, to make sure that those on our front lines have the information to, to make the recommendation for what is safe overall, right? The opioid may be safe if taken as directed, but there's still those, those concerns. And also we want them to educate on psychedelics to help overcome the stigma that patients may have. But it, part of that is also educating on, please take these as, you know, and, and again, we're not generally sending them home with a psychedelic. If they're gonna do MDMA-assisted psychotherapy, they're going to the therapist, the therapist will have gotten, you know, or somehow like there's only one dose that they're getting. They're not getting, you know, any, any amount that can be abused. But you're right that like we need to educate our medical community, which will help overcome the stigma possibly in the patient community, like you said, because if something is coming from their trusted provider, hopefully they understand that that trusted provider has educated themselves on the safety of it um, for good or for bad. Like you said, in the opioid, not so much, but hopefully in psychedelics, that does help us overcome the stigma in a good way. Okay, I think we're going to have to end there. I'm getting the cue to wrap. So that is all the time we have. I want to thank our guests for joining us. For our producers, Bent Boutier, Kathy Knapp, and Nathan Moore, engineer Mike Pashkash, co-host Mitch Legan. I'm Sarah Whitmire. Thanks for listening and have a good weekend. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville, fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Integrity First Insurance, provider of Erie Insurance, for all your auto, home, life, and business insurance needs. More information at 812-269-8897 or integrityfirstinsuranceservices.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org. And from Estate and Downsizing Specialists, LLC, offering complete turnkey services for estate and downsizing clients, from initial consultation through home cleanout to final real estate and personal property sales. More at edsindiana.com. Support comes from WFIU listeners like you and from Indiana Heritage Arts Annual Exhibition and Sale, continuing daily at the Brown County Art Gallery in Nashville. 100 artworks on view daily until July 9th. More at indianaheritagearts.org or on Facebook.